Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, it is our great hope that we would approach a mercy seat today where Jesus answers prayer. We are bowed down beneath that load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, war without fears within, but we come to you for rest, rest of soul, for the one who hears prayers is the one we approach. So hear us as we join together to pray. Incline your ear to Grace Fellowship Church of Toronto. Listen to our tiny little voice and answer. We have every reason to believe you will. You created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. You said, let there be light, there was light. You separated the waters, created the sky. You made land and oceans and then covered the earth with plants and vegetation. You set the sun in the heavens and the moon at night. You called forth fish and birds. You made every animal, creature, and insect. And then on that sixth day, you made us, humankind, male and female, you created them. Father, in the beginning, you created the heavens and the earth. Lord Jesus, all things were made through you, and without you was not anything made that was made. Spirit of God, you were there hovering over the face of the waters. You, our triune God, perfect in unity and purpose, made all things, and now you hold all things together by the exercise of your will. No wonder you would tell us, I am the Lord, there is no other. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. We have turned, O oh great God. We have believed. You flexed that same generative power when you effectually called us out of the darkness and into the light. You made us new. You gave us new hearts. You made us new creatures. And all the power of every star in the universe could not even slightly separate us from you. You are our God and there is no other. You are our Savior. You are our Deliverer. You are our hope. And you are so kind to us, so patient with us, so generous to us. You have never failed us, and you will never forsake us. And yet some of us are in the thick of it now, Lord. Troubles at work, pressures to conform to the world, unsure of how to fix an important relationship, really failing badly at some plaguing sin. And we wonder if we will ever see the light again. Our eyes are dim, our hearts are heavy, our hope is nearly gone. Oh God, remember the weak and the feeble among us. Strengthen weak arms. Encourage overwhelmed souls. Shine the light of your presence into darkened hearts. 
Remind us all of who you are and what you can do. The one who never fails, falters, or freaks out at things, the source of all strength in this creation, the only God of whom there is no other. If our hearts are weary, Help us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, but is now seated at your right hand. And as we remember him, Father, Father of glory, would you please give my dear brothers and sisters the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they may know what is the hope to which you've called them, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance to them, what's the immeasurable greatness of your power toward those who believe. Oh God, shatter our puny thoughts of you. Crack our hard hopes, our hard hearts, and open our blind eyes. Show us yourself, God. Give us a glimpse, just even a glimpse of your holiness, your greatness, your power, your majesty. And teach us to number our days and remember that we are dust. Oh God, without you, we are nothing. Our entire existence is all wrapped up in you. Did we forget that this week? Did we forget you this week? Did we live like we were atheists? Were we entertained by trinkets instead of the triune? Have we been looking at our troubles instead of you? Oh God, who of us has fully understood your greatness and your power? Which which of us has lived a life of pure and uninterrupted devotion to you? Why are we so weak, so distracted, so unfruitful, so easily swayed from the truth? We have no answer, but we come to you. Just like the disciples said to Jesus, where else can we go? Or as Moses said to you, if you won't go with us, then we won't go anywhere. So come, Lord, be with Grace Fellowship Church. Be with us at our members' meeting tonight. Meet with us. Make us wise. Help us to think biblically, to work hard at unity. Protect us as a church, Lord, and help us. Be with every member of our church, but especially our young adult members. We love them. You have blessed us with them. So, God, I pray you would protect them from any form of gossip or immorality or laziness or divisiveness, all the things that might fracture friendships and harm ministry. And please watch over all our little children. Oh, how we love them, Lord. Please hear their little voices when they pray. Be with them even when they are scared or lonely, or lost. Show them more and more of you. Grab their hearts while they are young, Lord. Help them to see and believe that you don't have to be old in order to love Jesus. Remember the brokenness of our world, Father. There are so many wars and rumors of wars 
nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, and these things you told us, Lord, are just the beginning of the birth pangs. We know these things must first take place, but we will trust you through every crisis and every calamity because we know a day is coming when everyone will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The day when he sends out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven, and so we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And then, Father, as we come to the end of this very hard book of Judges, I pray that you might impress upon all of us that most important thing, to be men and women who do what is right in the eyes of God. Make it so, we pray, in the name of Jesus, amen. Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of Judges. If you would turn to Judges chapter 20, you'll find that on page 205 if you have one of our church Bibles. If you need a Bible, one of the ushers would be glad to bring you a copy of the Scriptures. You can just raise your hand. I will be preaching in a moment from Judges chapter 20, and so it would really help you to have that open in front of you so you can follow along. Make sure I'm not making stuff up. Uh, Judges chapter 20. I'll begin reading in verse 1 down to about halfway through verse 36, and then we'll go to chapter 21 and read the rest of that chapter. Judges chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. The leaders of Gibeah rose up against me, surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. 
Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. The people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeon. The men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening and they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day, and Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So, Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and then were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Maragiba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Over to chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day, the people rose early and built there an altar 
offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Rimmon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive out of the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, behold, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would be now be guilty." And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Please take your Bibles again and open to Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 20. I was talking to a dear friend of mine recently from years ago. He's an older man. He told me of a long conversation he had recently had with a young man. Perhaps I should say a long listen he had to a young man. Because over the course of those several hours, that young man laid out all of his problems, some of the chaos that he was living in. And my old friend reflected, you know, he never asked me a single question. Here he was, sitting with the full attention of a wise, seasoned Christian brother, and all he could think about and talk about was himself. My old friend was chuckling a bit as he told me that story, puzzled at why a young man would think so much of himself 
that all he would talk about was himself and not ask for any counsel nor advice nor help. And I wonder how often the Lord looks at us with a similar thought. I'm right here. I can help. But you got to ask. We are dropping into part two of the last recorded event in the book of Judges. There's two bad things that happen. We're in the second one. We're in the second part of the second one. We ended last time at chapter 20, verse 11, which says, all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And I am sure you remember how the very gross sins in the city of Gibeah, which is in the land of Benjamin. Gibeah is the city. Benjamin's the territory, the tribe. That, that sin that had occurred there in the city of Gibeah had been broadcast throughout the entire nation of Israel by the dismembering of a Levite's concubine and the distribution of her body parts throughout the 12 tribes. It was horrific. But it led to the entire nation, except for the tribe of Benjamin, gathering together and then demanding that the Benjaminites surrender the men of Gibeah. So verse 12, the tribe of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamins, not just to that one city, but through all the cities, saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Verse 13, now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. So the 11 tribes of Israel demand the one tribe of Benjamin surrender the worthless fellows of Gibeah, the city of Gibeah. They intend, those 11 tribes, to exercise capital punishment on the worthless fellows. And we're supposed to, when we read that, remember, oh yeah, we read that back in chapter 19. Look back there, chapter 19, verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men on the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. So, the tribe of Benjamin is contacted by all, everybody else, what are you guys going to do with those worthless fellows of Gibeah? Will you stick with your tribesmen or will you turn them over to us? Look at verse 13, Judges 20. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. And then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah. So they go to that city to go out to battle against the people of Israel, their, their fellow Israelites. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities, not just Gibeah, but all their cities, 26,000 men who drew the sword. Uh, there were 700 from Gibeah, and then there's these 700 left-handed stone slingers, right? There are 700 chosen men who are left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Kids, how many of you have a slingshot? Well, tell your parents to get you a... No, tell your parents they can... That maybe they ought to consider. Slingshots are awesome, not in the house. All the moms are looking at me like, why would you do that? Uh, slingshots are great, not in the house, but a slingshot, like a thing like this with a big rubber band, you can make one, uh, just saying. And, and you put a, like a, a stone in there, you pull it back and ding, it goes. And these guys 
could hit a hair at distance. That means they are precise and they are accurate. And because they're left-handed, they're probably coming on the inside of what uh, normally you'd, you'd keep your shield. You'd be right-handed. Your shield would be on your left hand. So they're kind of coming like this at the opposing army, right? They're, they're getting around the shields. So Benjamin's response when Israel says, you know, bring us the, the men of Gibeah, Benjamin's response is, no, no, we're fighting. Bring it on. They muster their troops. They they gather around Gibeah to protect Gibeah and to protect the worthless men in Gibeah. There are 26,000 of them. Benjamin lines up her troops, verse 17, the men of Israel apart from Benjamin mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of war. So the odds are not in Benjamin's favor. 400,000 versus 26,000. I mean, 26,000 people is a lot, but it's nothing compared to nearly a half a million people. So it seems like we know where this is going to go. But as we read, things don't go as planned. The chaos caused by the concubine incident results in even more complexity in Israel. And there are many things to glean from this passage, but I want to focus in on Israel and specifically how they navigated their path in that chaos, right? That's what we want to see. How did Israel decide what to do in the chaos of their situation? They give us a good example and a really bad example. And I think we can learn from both. Think of them as a positive and a negative. The first is the positive. Ask God for help in your troubles. Ask God for help in your troubles. If you read back through the story, this incident, God is missing. He's never mentioned. He's not talked about. It's like he's been forgotten. But from verse 18 through verse 35, the name Yahweh appears over and over again. Only he's doing things in a way you may not suspect. It starts with Israel looking to God, inquiring of God, asking God for his guidance and his help. And there will be three times Israel does this, and then actually a fourth. But we'll look at the first three. Inquiry number one is this, verse 18. The people of Israel arose, went up to Bethel, and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And Yahweh said, did you see that? Yahweh said, Judah shall go up first. So here's Israel in their messy time going to God. I mean, that's great news. They go to Bethel because that's where the tabernacle is set up. And they're they're meeting with God. They're, they're, They're using the priest, as we will see in a moment, the Urim and the Thummim, probably the way they did it. And shockingly, God answers them. That's amazing. It's great. It's meant to sound a lot like Judges chapter 1, verse 1, which says this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, who shall go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them? Yahweh said, Judah shall go up first. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And so what's happening here in chapter 20 is an echo of what happened in chapter 1. They inquire, who goes first? Yahweh answers. 
Yahweh says Judah in both places. We've come full circle. And one can imagine the other 10 tribes filing in behind Judah's crack soldiers, brimming with a kind of sober confidence. This is what must be done. Let's do it. But of course, the big, big difference between chapter 1's inquiry and chapter 2's inquiry is that in chapter 1, Judah led the way to conquering foreigners, Canaanites. And in chapter 20, Judah is to lead the way in conquering their brothers who were acting like Canaanites. This is civil war, not holy war. And there is a dark cloud over the nation. And yet Yahweh is there. He answers them. He tells them, yes, go. And then it ends in failure. Look at the first failure in verse 19. The people of Israel rose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. 400,000 verses 25,000, 26,000. Men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up in battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed in that day 22,000 men of the Israelites, the huge army. This is supposed to be shocking. Israel vastly outnumbers Benjamin. And yet it's Israel who suffers massive casualties. It's perplexing because they inquired of God, should we go into battle? And God said yes, and they get routed. And for some reason, God did not appear to, or rather the nation didn't appear to be too rattled by this. Verse 22, the the people, the men of Israel, took courage like a manly man, and again formed the battle line in the same place where they'd formed it on the first day. Instead of bailing, hightailing it, they're pumped yourself up. They're pumping themselves up, resetting the battle lines, and before they take shot number two, they go back to Yahweh. This is inquiry number two. In verse 23, the people of Israel went up and wept before Yahweh until the evening. They inquired of Yahweh, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And Yahweh said, go up against them. Don't miss how many times Yahweh's name is repeated there. So so this time a contingent of Israel's army goes back to Bethel and they their, their approach here is very humble. They, they gather outside the tabernacle. They weep. And it's not until that is done that they make this second inquiry. Shall we fight against our brothers? And Yahweh says, yes. But it's a yes that leads to failure number two. Verse 24, so the people of Israel came against the people of Benjamin the second day. Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. They were real soldiers. They weren't just farmer dudes with a pitchfork. They were true soldiers. So this is not going right. Yahweh has told them to go both times. He says, go. And so in battle one, they go, they lose 22,000 men. They ask again, shall we go? He says, go. Battle two, they lose 18,000 more men. Israel is down 10% of their fighting force after only two battles. And the bad guys, the Benjaminites, 
don't seem to be taking any casualties at all. The left-handed slingshotters are picking off the Israelite soldiers like no problem. And, and we're supposed to be reading this going, what is going on, Lord? Well, could it be that God is doing more than one thing at the same time? Is he perhaps humbling the entire nation, not just the Benjaminites? Could it be that God is asking them to follow a certain path knowing full well they're going to suffer if they obey? That perhaps he has bigger things in mind, more important things going on than what is merely happening on the surface. I think it might be. Perhaps one of those things is determining if Israel is going to continue to obey his directions even if it's hard. Their sore defeat, number two, leads to inquiry, number three. Uh, verse 26, then all the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before Yahweh and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. Notice the escalation. Presumably, the previous inquiries were made by representatives of the army. Somebody stayed back. Remember, they had made the battle lines. There were still soldiers there. But this time, everybody comes. They leave the battle line. The whole army comes. And they weep before Yahweh like, like the last time. But now they add stuff. They, they sit before Yahweh, which is an act of spiritual devotion. They just sit there before Yahweh. They fast. They don't eat. They don't drink. They make sacrifices to Yahweh, burnt offerings. We are totally devoted to you. Peace offerings. We're calling upon you as our friend. They are being brought lower, Israel is, and they're obeying. They're using all the means that God has given to approach him. You have to remember that this is a really confusing time in Israel. There are good people who do bad things. There are bad people who do good things. Uh, there are some people who do good things and bad things at the same time. <laughs> it's confusion. This looks like a time Israel, who's not doing so well in a lot of categories, at least this time is doing well. They're humbling themselves before the Lord. They make their inquiry. Verse 27, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh. Look at this though. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, verse 28, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. They asked, shall we go out? And Yahweh says, go up, for tomorrow I'll give them into your hand. This is, this is the little reference point in the narrative that locates us historically, tells us that this event, even though it's happening at the end of the book of Judges, happened much, much earlier in the history of the Judges, either between a couple of Judges, maybe during the reign of a certain Judge, and it wasn't attributed to him. We know this because of who the priest was, Phineas. There are a few dudes named Phineas in your Bible, but this is the good one. Uh, this, is, this is the dude who is a very young man, uh, so Aaron is the brother of Moses. Aaron has a son, Eleazar. Eleazar has a son, Phineas. And Phineas is the guy, when the plague is coming, when the people are, are camping at Pe Peor, 
uh, they start to worship Baal of Peor. And, and God starts to bring a plague. Thousands are dying. And there's one, another dude, who marches on with his Midianite wife into his tent saying, yeah, I don't care about your God. I'm going to marry the Midianites if I feel like it. And Phineas is the guy who grabbed his spear, followed him in there, and uh, ended their lives. <laughs> and that stopped the plague. And Phineas was noted by God for his devotion to God. So you got a good priest here, a good man. Phineas is the one who is asking Yahweh, shall we go or should we stop this? And Yahweh answers again, go. Probably through the Urim and Thummim, the things in the ephod, the breastplate, the breastpiece that he would wear as high priest. These, these things were only to be used for national urgency. This is national urgency. So they ask God again. God tells them, go fight. But this is the first time God adds a little phrase, and I will give them into your hand. So now we come to victory. Victory number one. This is the third battle. It's described twice, verses 29 to 36, and then it starts over again in verse 37 to 48. I'm not going to read it all. I'll just summarize the battle because the, the second sort of iteration description fills in some blanks of the first. So let me just kind of simplify it. Israel gets their regular troops to take up positions outside of Gibeah. And the plan this time is ambush. Now we don't know if God is the one who told them to ambush like he did at Ai with uh, Joshua or whether they just remembered that and thought, hey, we should try an ambush. We don't know. But that's the plan. So Israel starts fighting with the people, the men of Benjamin, at Gibeah. And once Israel starts taking casualties, about 30 men, they start backing up, backing up, backing up. They're retreating. It looks like they're retreating. And the guys in Gibeah, the Benjaminites, think, ha, we got them on the run. Let's go. So they leave the safety of their city and they begin pursuing Israel. And it's just then 10,000 of the really best soldiers of Israel swoop in behind them into the city of Gibeah. They raise the city. They kill men, women, children, everybody in the city. And they light it all on fire. And the Gibeonites, oh, that was my right hand, sling, uh, left-handed slingers and everything are out there fighting the battle until somebody turns around and rising into the air is a huge cloud of smoke, perhaps a little nod to Sodom when it was destroyed by God. And this new Sodom of Israel is caught up and burned. And the Benjaminites, now greatly outnumbered with nowhere to go, panic and they scatter and it's wholesale slaughter. Now the large numbers here can be kind of confusing. Israel, which is the vastly larger army, over the first two battles loses 40,000 soldiers. That's about 10% of their army. 40,000. Benjamin in this battle, loses 25,000 soldiers, but that's 95% of their army. There's nobody left. They are decimated. Not only that, after chasing off the tiny remnant of 600 Benjaminite soldiers, Israel then turned around and they went back through the whole territory of Benjamin, killing everybody. It's a scorched earth philosophy. 
they, they went to all the cities, towns, hamlets, little enclaves of the Benjaminites, and they killed men, women, children, livestock, burned the cities, destroyed all. So when we get to this, the later part of the story where there's 600 men left, that's all that's left out of an entire tribe. 600 weary soldiers. Benjamin is wiped out. And supposedly the whole horrid affair of the Levite and his concubine is resolved. But the story doesn't end here. Almost on a dime, Israel flips. They go from winning to weeping. That takes us to number two. Don't rely on yourself to get out of, the, out of your troubles, especially the troubles of your own making. Don't rely on yourself to get out of your troubles. This is the fourth and the last time Israel inquires of the Lord. It's Judges 21, verse 2. The people came to Bethel, sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices. This is after the great victory. And they wept bitterly. And they said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? This is a puzzling question. Because you're the same guys who just went nuts and killed everybody. Let me try and give you my best shot at what's going on here. Perhaps you have had the sad experience of becoming enraged at something or someone. And you did and said things in that rage that were quite severe. Even if you felt they were justified, when, when, it all, when it's all said and done, you, you calm down and you look at the results of your rage with sadness. Oh my, what have I done? That might be something of what's going on with Israel. These guys are close enough to the days of Joshua that they know the end goal. We're supposed to take the promised land, that which was promised to us by our God Yahweh, and each tribe is to live in their allotted territory. And yet this sodomization of Gibeah and now of Benjamin has left us short. We're down a man. God, you said that all 12 tribes would live here. What have we done? And yet all is not lost. As we mentioned, out of the entire tribe of Benjamin, there are 600 men left. That's it. Verse 47, the 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And after that four months, Israel determines they're going to make, we'll send terms of peace to those 600 guys living on the rock. But these are the days, right, of mixed motives, confusing standards, the days when everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. The days in which King Yahweh is being routinely forgotten and disobeyed. So while they return to Bethel and the tabernacle and priest Phineas and inquire of, to God, what should we do for the 600? Crickets. There is no answer. No answer. Verse 4, they offer many sacrifices. No answer. And instead of waiting for a solution from Yahweh, they return to the same kind of pragmatism 
and self-rule that got them into this mess in the first place. We'll get to those decisions in a moment, but I need to remind you of the vows Israel made because that's what gives us the setting for their silly actions. So you have to go back to when the, the Levite, you know, gathers everybody through the remains of his concubine, and the 11 tribes gather together at Mizpah. They listen to the story, chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, and once they heard the, remember it's the revised edition of what happened, the Levite left out some things, once they hear this, they decide to bring about justice on the worthless fellows of Gibeah. Gibeah is the city in Benjamin. And in preparation for that, the men of the 11 tribes who are gathered there at Mizpah make pre-war vows. Now, vows are not a bad thing if they're done right. In fact, the best vow you can ever make is to deny yourself and pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ. A Christian is a person who renounces the world, renounces sin and Satan, renounces themselves, and turns to Jesus with a kind of pledge of loyalty that says, you're my salvation. I have no way to get to God except through you. I believe that when you died on the cross for sinners, you died for me. Have you made that vow? Because that's the best vow you can make. Have you made that pledge? It's the most important thing you'll ever do in your entire life. Come to Christ. Vow your life to Jesus and be saved from your sins. Stop doing what is right in your own eyes. Be made right in the eyes of God. Vow to be his, he will be yours. Now these Israelite soldiers made some vows too, but they weren't good ones. The first vow was this. We vow to destroy the worthless men of Gibeah and anybody else who doesn't come along on our side to fight against them. So you find that in verse 8, chapter 21, verse 5, where it says the great, they'd taken the great oath concerning him who did not come up to Yahweh to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. In other words, when they blow the trumpet, you got to come. And if you don't come, it's like saying, well, I'm with, I'm with the Gibeonite guys. That's vow number one. We will destroy the men of Gibeah and anybody who doesn't fight with us. Vow number two, we will not let our daughters intermarry with any surviving Benjaminites. Men of Israel swore at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Okay, those are the two vows. They come into play in how Israel's going to try on their own to solve the problem of the disappearing tribe of Benjamin. 600 men, they'll be gone in a generation, right? So the second vow stated that the men who did come and fight against Gibeah, against Benjamin, could never give their daughters to a Benjaminite to be married. So the problem's obvious. There are now only 600 unmarried Benjaminites left in all the world, and they're all male, which means this 12th tribe is going to be gone in a generation unless we find them some wives. But problem, we can't give them any of our daughters for wives. And they can't marry any Canaanite women. Israel weeps 
bitterly before Yahweh about this for a day. But when they do not get an answer, they hatch their own plan, and it comes in two parts. It's not good. It might be pragmatic, but it ain't godly. First part, they manipulate the first vow, the vow called the great vow. You vow to the death. Any Israelite who does not come to fight against Benjamin must be put to death. So the leader blows the trumpet. If you don't come, it's your pledge of allegiance to the bad guys. Remember, in the whole book of Judges, this is the most unified Israel has ever been when they go to fight against themselves. Everybody came to Mizpah. Everybody except the men of Jabesh Gilead, which is a little city east of the Jordan River in the tribe of Manasseh. Now, some military bean counter read through the army roll and he figured out, hey, wait a second, nobody came from Jabesh Gilead. Well, there we go. Here's what we'll do. We will solve the problem of the disappearing tribe of Benjamin by stealing girls from Jabesh Gilead. I mean, after all, they didn't come to the war, so let's attack. We'll punish Jabesh Gilead for not showing up. They're breakers of the great vow. And while we're, while we're there, we'll preserve and grab all their female virgins. And that's precisely what they do. They raise the city. Men, women, children. Judges 21.12, they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So you've got this sudden, horrible raid, and then the enslavement, essentially the enslavement of 400 women. We're not getting better. <laughs> but we still have a problem. 400 wives for 600 men. So more has to be done. Rather than looking to Yahweh to solve this problem, they call in the lawyers. I, it, the, there's no mention of lawyers here, but I think these people with lawyer like minds. Because somebody thought of a loophole. It's a little complicated, but look at verse 19. They said, behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh. So, they tell the 200 guys who don't have a wife yet. Verse 21, chapter 21. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances at this feast of Yahweh, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And if their dads throw a little hissy fit, verse 22, when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. So the lawyer, I think, who dreamed this up, basically this is what he said. Look, the men of Shiloh, they came and fought with us. They, they, they kept the great vow. They're under the vow. They cannot give their daughters in marriage to a Benjaminite. They cannot give their daughter. What if someone were to take their daughters? That would be okay. Legally speaking, we've kept the vow. The fathers did not give them. They did not break their vow. We took them. So the men of Shiloh, legally speaking, will not be breaking the vow. You know what this is, right? 
This is everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. So apparently Shiloh has this big dance party to Yahweh where the young virgins went boogieing through the vineyards and the last 200 Benjaminite soldiers are hiding there. So when the girls come out to dance, they grab one, they run away with her. And when the men of Shiloh complain, your answer is to argue a technicality. Oh, my brother, you did not give her. She was taken. Peace, be still. But I mean, it worked. I mean, at this point, what are the fathers and brothers of Shiloh going to do? So a story that began with kidnapping and rape ends with the same. From the Levites' concubine to the girls of Shiloh, women suffer. On the battlefield, men die. And even well-meaning people who get some things right end up making terrible decisions. Israel is a mess. Nothing has changed, which is why this book of Judges ends with verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me give you four points of application from this difficult text. Number one, brother, sister, it is always better to stick to doing what God reveals rather than what we think might work. There were moments in this sad story where Israel looked to God in real humility and Yahweh told them exactly what to do. But there were many, many other times where Israel ignored God or grew impatient for an answer and then did what they figured was best, what they thought would be most expedient. They backed themselves into problems like no wives for the 600 because of their vows and then came up with these cockamamie fixes that only made the problem worse. We do this all the time. We make some lame choice that leaves us in a bad predicament, and our great solution is try something else. My marriage is hard because I have been selfish. By all means, don't read your Bible, repent, and pray. Buy the latest how-to manual from Amazon. That'll get you. I have mounting credit card debt because of my lack of self-control. By all means, don't read your Bible and obey the simple commands. Cheat on your taxes. Buy into the next quick money Ponzi scheme. That'll fix it. Look, if you back yourself into a problem and you don't know what to do, pray. Ask God for help. Open this book, read it, ask God to direct you from the book. And if you do all that and you still don't know what to do, God has given you elders in your local church who know your life and know the book who will then do what they can to help direct you on how to make your choices to get out of the mess that you are in. The last thing you should do is just keep coming up with more cockamamie schemes. 
Number two, accept that the fact, the path to victory, accept the fact that the path to victory is sometimes potholed in failures. One of the roads that I like to take on my commute home, because I like avoiding highways, one of the roads I'm taking, I take it every day, and it is just littered with potholes. It's a personal mission of mine to get through the road without hitting a pothole. And uh, I know the places to go, the places not to go, and I have yet to make it perfectly across that road. There's too many potholes. You can't get through life without hitting a pothole here or there, too. They're not all your fault. Now, this might be tricky to lay out, but think of those times Israel came to God and asked God if they should go up and fight Benjamin, their, their brother tribe. And each time, God said, yes, do that. In the first battle, they lose 22,000 men. In the second battle, they lose another 18,000 men. 40,000 men died in two days of fighting. That's failure, failure while they were doing what God told them to do. Now, you've got to ponder that for a minute. God had his own secret purposes in their defeats as they obeyed the instructions he had revealed for them to do. The road of obedience might include significant, very jarring potholes as you obey. We know what this is like, don't we? If you follow the Lord long enough, you will. You know, it's in that, that anthem of swelling praise in Romans chapter 8 where Paul's talking about Christians being justified, never separated from the love of Christ, conquerors. Right in the middle of that, he quotes Psalm 44, which says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That makes sense to you? The path of obedience for a Christian may include the massive pothole of death. But death in the act of faithfulness to his revealed will is a victory. Christian, you have simply got to banish from your mind the philosophical lie of Job's three friends. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Nonsense. Horrible things have happened to excellent people. Have you never thought of the cross? Number three. Real success is intimately connected to real humility. After their first defeat, 
before they looked to Yahweh, the text says, verse 22, the people, the men of Israel, took courage, and again formed the battle line. Took courage is a fine translation. Uh, there's, there's maybe just a little bit something, not lacking, but maybe you wouldn't catch it on sort of your first read, because the idea there is kind of like they rallied themselves, they strengthened themselves, kind of like a New Zealand rugby haka. You've seen that? I don't know what it is, but there are no? Oh, look up New Zealand. Or you're just like shaking your head like that. You shouldn't have done that. Okay. So, uh, so this is what's happening here, right? They're just trying to, they're trying to get themselves all pumped up. It's not until that second major defeat that Israel turns to God with weeping and fasting and sacrifices. There is a, a, a stubborn belief in all of us We're all like the Nike shoe, like, just do it. I can just do it. Boom, 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 life is hard. I'll just do it. I'm quite familiar with that lie. And God, in his abounding mercy, may let you believe it a time or two before he helps you to see how helpless you are. The army of Israel lost thousands and thousands of soldiers against a tiny army of slingshotters before they realized we need God's help. Don't be that guy. Look to God. Once Israel humbled themselves, marched out to battle number three, the fighting was still hard. Verse 34, the battle was hard. Chapter 20, verse 34. But as hard as the fighting was, verse 35, and Yahweh defeated Benjamin before Israel. God is the one who brought about the victory, and God did not provide the victory until Israel was in a place they couldn't deny. It was him. It wasn't us. Are you fighting some plaguing sin but not getting the victory? Maybe that's because deep down inside, you're still depending on you. Just do it. Just do it. Instead of him. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The way up to God is by always by going down. You may be in the worst jam in your life right now, and you would be amazed at what God can do if you go low and you ask for help. Number four, don't be a Canaanite Christian. There's this very strange phrase at the end of verse 12, chapter 21, verse 12. Uh, they, they brought them, the the 400 young virgins from Jabesh Gilead, to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Now, Shiloh is really close to Bethel, both cities in the promised land, both in the tribe of Ephraim. Both cities housed the tabernacle at different times, seen to go back and forth between them, which has made careful Bible readers puzzle for years over the end of verse 12. Why did the narrator say Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan? 
This ain't the land of Canaan anymore. This is the land of Israel. This is the promised land. This is, this is not Canaan. And, and most think this is a little tip of the cards by our author. Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Remember they had that dance of young girls running out to the vineyards, boogieing in the vineyards? The feast of Yahweh, a thing that doesn't even exist in the law? All that seems to be suggesting that Shiloh was a hotbed of syncretism. The authentic worship of Yahweh was all muddied up with the traditions and superstitions and sexualized customs of Canaan. Shiloh was full of Israelites who were living like Canaanites. You trying to live like that, friend? Are you a Christian trying to live in the world, adopting the world's values, adopting the world's outlooks, the spending patterns of the world, the speech of the world? If you come to this church most Sundays, after a week of watching sex-filled or violence-ridden movies or cussing up a storm at work or knocking on wood or crossing your fingers or rolling the dice or reading your horoscope, then you're like Shiloh. You live in Israel, but your heart is in Canaan. If you're just a Christian, a normal Christian, you ought to be thinking about God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You should actually be praying to him, like actual prayers, not just thoughts. You should should be reading the Bible that you own. Friends, you've got it on your phone. It's with you all the time. You should be getting baptized, joining the church as a member, telling other people about Jesus, living a holy life. That's just a normal Christian life. Does that describe you? If I read your Twitter timeline, what would it tell me about your thinking? If I looked up your browsing history on all your devices, what would it speak of your delights? If I read a transcript of every thought you had last week, what would it indicate to me of your heart loyalties? Friend, get out of Shiloh. Stop trying to be in the world with a little bit of eternal fire insurance. That's not how it works. If you're not careful, you will end up doing what is right in your own eyes And that never works out well, especially in the eternal sense. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your whole self, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Idolatry leads to misery. Sin leads to chaos. Pragmatism leads to complexity, but there is a God and he is willing and able to help you in all of your trials, all of your troubles, if you ask him for help and you stop relying on yourself. You don't have to be a young man to merely 
describe your problems to him and talk about yourself endlessly. Old men can do that too. But whether you are old or young, a man or a woman, you can always come to God and ask for help in your day of trouble. It doesn't matter where you are, my brother. It doesn't matter where you are, my sister. It doesn't matter where you are, friend who's not a Christian yet. Turn to God. Cry out to God. Call to God and he will help. Let's pray. So, Lord, give us grace to be the people who cry out to you and depend upon you. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.